This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. This week, we're going to tell you a story that pits a sheriff in rural Georgia against a charismatic cult leader and his followers. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Jessica Knoll. And I'm Will Johnson. They followed my every move. I got death threats by the hundreds. It never stopped. The Nuwabians set up camp in a rural part of Georgia back in the early 90s. But it wasn't just a camp. It was hundreds of acres of land that the out-of-towners turned into a makeshift village. Some locals called it a cult or religion. Or if you lived next door to the Nawabians back then, you might have just seen it as a bizarre sideshow. Because they said they come from what? Rich. Planet rich. Maybe the spaceship come in here and I could get away with them. <laughs> you know, people talk about Waco at the height. There weren't about 135 people at Waco. Hell, I had days out here where there were 5,000 people. But whatever it was, a cult, a sideshow, or something else, it turned out to be a place of unspeakable abuse and secrets, secrets that would leave lifelong scars on anyone they touched. And when they were finally brought to light, those secrets uncovered the crimes of one man that went back decades. When I hear about the story of the Nuwabians, it seems like every time I hear it, it starts with sort of a chuckle. <laughs> like, of course, it's kind of funny to think about an Egyptian city springing up in the middle of rural Georgia. But by the time you get to the end of the story, there's nothing to laugh about. I will say one of the first times I went out there, I said, you know, I just had this feeling this is not going, this is, this is going to go down bad. The hero of this story is the sheriff of Putnam County, Georgia, Howard Sills. Jessica, you had a pretty long chat with Sheriff Sills about the Nuwabians. Yeah, I think it really defined the early years of his job in Putnam County. And it also had a major impact on his life, his personal safety, even the safety of his family. So we'll come back to Jessica and Sheriff Howard Sills. But we're going to start the story with a veteran newspaper reporter. Bill Osinski was a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And in 1998, he found himself in Eatonton, Georgia, about an hour and a half from Atlanta. 25 miles from the nearest freeway. And uh, I um, was meeting with some uh, with, a, with a lady, and we were chatting, and she asked me, um, have you seen our pyramid people? And I said, what? <laughs> she said, well, there's these people that came down a couple of years ago, and they're, they're mostly from New York, and, and we don't know, they're kind of, they're, they're out in this place, and they're building kind of all this Egyptian stuff. She has Bill's attention, so he follows her directions along a curving two-lane country road and comes across an Egyptian city, gleaming in the Georgia sun. Here is this 40-foot-high black-and-gold pyramids, and then you get closer, and there's all kinds of Egyptian deities, statues lining the driveway, and a, a ziggurat, and uh, all this Egyptian paraphernalia, and a big arched gateway with all these Egyptian symbols on it. And, and I'm saying, what the heck is this? For Bill, for anyone who drove down that country road and saw the compound, it must have been a bizarre sight. Doug Richards, a reporter with WXIA in Atlanta, also took that drive and spent some time inside the walls talking to members and touring the grounds. The group's leader is identified in literature as Malachi Zodok York. He says that he is from the 8th planet in the 19th galaxy of Iliwun, a universe far outside of this one. Does it make sense to you? We're from Orion. Dr. York is from Risk. He's from, he's from Orion. What's the deal? 
It's nothing, it's nothing strange. It's just new to the public. Are they a cult? Depends on the definition of a cult. Certainly there are, are, are many characteristics similar with other uh, entities that are uh, defined as cults. That's the voice of Sheriff Howard Sills. He's been the sheriff of Putnam County, Georgia, since 1997. He first heard about the Nuwabian group before he took over as sheriff of Putnam County. At the time, he was chief deputy in neighboring Baldwin County. We would periodically get calls from parents saying, my child's down there in a cult. And we, we, my child went off to college, and now I can't talk to my child. I can't see my child there in some kind of a cult. But that was just the beginning. The future sheriff would get to know a lot more about the group in the years that followed. But let's stay with Bill Osensky, the newspaper reporter who was also just starting to learn about the group in 1998. After seeing the compound for the first time, he goes back into the little town of Eatonton and starts asking around. He hears more about the leader, Dwight Malachi York, and the group of followers that arrived in Putnam County in the early 90s. You know, I, I learned that uh, these people were mostly from Brooklyn, New York, uh, that had came down here and built all these things. And they were living out there on this property, which had been basically a hunting preserve. But when he talks to Sheriff Howard Sills and hears about the calls from parents who can't reach their kids, his ears really perk up. The straw parents saying, you know, I can't can't make contact with my child, and they, uh, she's at this place out uh, near near your town, and and uh, they won't let me talk to her, and she says she doesn't want to talk to me. You know, the sheriff uh, Howard Sills was actually afraid that. He had had a cult moved into his backyard. And that's enough to get Bill suspicious. He decides to keep digging. I got a copy of an FBI intelligence report, which uh, had investigated uh, their uh, the group while they were in Brooklyn and came out with a fascinating history that for 25 years, this group had evaded any criminal uh investigations while, in fact, they were running basically a crime cult. Strong-arm extortion, uh, bank robbery, massive welfare fraud, and one political assassination, uh, all attributed to this group. All of a sudden, the strange roadside attraction with a leader from the 8th planet in the 19th galaxy was looking more sinister. Bill learns that the group once owned a whole section of Bushwick Avenue in Brooklyn, and they were basically untouchable. Even the police seem to turn a blind eye and let them operate in the shadows, and sometimes in the clear light of day. He asks his bosses at the newspaper to send him to Brooklyn, New York. They were their own isolated community, and their their guards were they had armed guards patrolling the area. Heading up the whole organization was Dwight York, a man who used a veil of religion to mask a culture of corruption and crime. Dwight York was his real name, and he had come out of prison as a man in his mid-20s, and was apparently caught up in uh, in in prison. He had learned about uh, Islam, and uh, apparently also learned that you didn't have to have much to set yourself up as a as a black Muslim leader. And here's the thing: in the context of the times, the police department and Muslim leaders were not exactly cozy. In fact, police were basically told to stay out of York's business. Things had gotten so bad that the police. Department ordered edicts saying, telling their officers, you can't go into those mosques armed. You have to be escorted by public relations officials. You have to have permission from our high. So there's York presenting himself as a sort of deity and recruiting followers. He didn't tell them that they'd have to give up all their possessions and, and their bank accounts and their family ties. What he told them was, you know, 
why do you fool around with the white man's hand-me-down religion when uh, you know we can we can have our own religion and make our own rules and educate our children our way? From the late 60s to the late 80s, Dwight York had a pretty good thing going. At least if you're in the business of building yourself up as a leader to a group of dedicated loving followers. He had satellites in major cities around the country and half a dozen foreign groups, and they would all, you know, pay him tribute, and uh, they would come to Brooklyn once a year to honor him at his birthday, and of course everybody would, would bring money and buy some of his stuff. And what happened was the real Muslims got tired of him because he, to them he was a, a a blatant heretic. I mean, he, uh, you know, he went into distinctly non-Muslim practices like performing uh, at uh, nightclubs as Dr. Love with his band Passion, and he claimed I was just going there to recruit. And, uh, uh, of course, the real Muslims didn't like that and a number of other stuff. It's also around when the FBI opened up an intelligence investigation looking into York as the leader of a domestic terrorism group. Clearly, York had worn out his welcome in New York, and that's when the journey to Georgia all started taking shape. He sent one of his concubines down to Georgia, and she settled on this uh, tract in uh, Nowheresville. Not long afterwards, he basically blew town. He took some of his... uh, favorites and invited other people down and moved to Georgia. When Bill says he sent a concubine, he's not being sarcastic. It helps paint the picture of York's lifestyle, or whatever you want to call it. At any rate, they finally make it to Putnam County, Georgia, and settle on this Egyptian theme, along with a philosophy cobbled together from various ideologies and religions. York was in the habit of spewing out writings and even had a Bible that he sold along with various pamphlets and handouts. He wrote hundreds of books. They're all just like glorified comic books. Uh, he just gobbled it all together, got some of his uh, people to make, make drawings of these various uh, characters that he produced. And it's an impressive fake Bible. It had, you know, the leather covers and onion skin printing. It was a religion, but all it was was, you know, just his concoctions. But the real money was, get this, the nightclub. The centerpiece of the Putnam County property is a nightclub the group opened in October. At midday, it was in high decibel preparation for an upcoming party. Outside, there were parked three stretch limousines. It didn't have adequate power. They had all kind of generators and wires running everywhere. And he would bring acts from New York and uh, ferry people in from Atlanta and and have a thousand or more people there on a week, weekend night. I mean, people, I mean, literally, I, I think that we, we counted like 1,200 there one night. This is a theme park? An Egyptian theme park. Now, there's some people who think this is a cult. Well, there's two ways to look at it. We don't happen to have a religious belief. You follow what I'm saying? Now, on the other hand, culture cult culture that's a connect there's a connection there so if you say we are cult in the sense of we found a culture that works for us yeah if you're the sheriff the idea of a nightclub raking in money with no permits no license busing in people for weekend parties well you can imagine how that went down sills shut it down but the nuwabians weren't going anywhere in fact they accused sills of harassment there were lawsuits and allegations and then more lawsuits and allegations. He was complaining that the redneck sheriff was uh, harassing them and and preventing them from living on their own land. I mean, it was just you know it was just one damn thing after after another. 
So, Jessica, things were sort of heating up between Howard Sills and the New Obians. He shut the nightclub down, and he was clearly keeping a close eye on what was going on at the compound. Yeah, and as you might imagine, the Nawabians didn't appreciate the local sheriff messing in their business. But here's where things really start to turn. Howard Sills soon found himself with a target on his back. They followed my every move. I got death threats by the hundreds. I could, if I walked down the street, six or seven of them would follow me with cameras two inches from my face. It never stopped. At one point, members of the group even showed off hundreds of photos that they had taken of the sheriff's son. It was a war of intimidation and threats. They damn near got me one time in Atlanta when I was not paying attention. I mean, they followed me all the way to Atlanta. They followed me anywhere I went. And it didn't stop there. Part of York's expertise, if you can call it that, was to work the system, expose loopholes, keep the cops out, members in. They showed up at town meetings. Hell, if it was only me, there'd be 500 of them. I mean, we had a court hearing one time on it in the civil matter. I don't know, we had a couple of thousand show up at the courthouse. This all went on for years. Remember, York showed up in Georgia in the early 90s. Howard Sills became sheriff in 1998. So the Nuwabians were pretty entrenched in Putnam County. But then Sheriff Sills got some new information something he hadn't heard before. A medical professional uh, contacted me and said, Sheriff, uh, I was told that very young girls were having babies. Uh, Had babies, weren't allowed to talk, men were with them, and and they left with the baby without the appropriate testing and took the placenta with them. I'm not talking about one, there was there were several like that. Sheriff Sills opened the first official child molestation investigation into the group and Dwight York. Around the same time, Bill Osinski published his first article about the Nuwabians and their history in Brooklyn. And then Sheriff Sills got a letter in the mail. The letter showed where boys lived, girls lived, and just that the, they were being mistreated and sexually uh, abused too. I mean, that was the gist of the the letter. It appeared that the letter was from one of York's children. It was a girl that escaped from the compound, and she apparently had something to do with that uh, anonymous letter we got. In the letter, there were allegations. And then another victim came forward. And when that happened, the floodgate busted. It had taken years for Sheriff Sills to get what he needed to prove those crimes. Crimes against children were taking place behind York's locked gates. It would take a few more years to finally get everything in place to put an end to it all. On May 8, 2002, 80 SWAT officers and FBI agents and over 100 deputies moved in. And with a Huey gunship, we raided that son of a bitch. <laughs> we barred two armored vehicles from the Rockdale County Sheriff's Office, and we raided that compound, and not a single person was hurt. But I'm telling you, every adult was handcuffed and laying on the ground in 20 minutes. York was also arrested that day, and even up until the end, he was looking for a way out, another loophole. He claimed to be a Liberian diplomat. Uh, and that that was the Liberian consulate. Gradually, more victims came forward, along with more stories of abuse. Uh, York would so-called marry these children, you know, child age, you know, when they were little children, uh, and then uh, sexually abused them. And, uh, they lived in a closed society. They were groomed as children. He, he 
played with them. He had a pink panther, big life-size type pink panther with a penis on it. Just, uh, and of course, we found all those things when we did the search warrant. Newspaper reporter Bill Osinski says York's sex crimes went back years and years back to the neighborhood in New York. All through the years of the Brooklyn years, Dwight had sexual relations with any and every woman of his cult, and he fathered at least 200 children. And, of course, that grew to be a a big number. And he moved down to Georgia, and they became a very isolated group. You know, I don't know what his thought process was, but he kind of devolved. Instead of women above the age of consent, he started going lower and lower and, and to the point where he started molesting the children, uh, particularly the children of his most loyal followers, the ones who would be least likely to believe the children. And uh, and so he got away with that for another eight years or more down, down here in Georgia. When Dwight York was finally arrested in 2002, he was charged with more than 100 counts of child molestation. More victims were located, and some were willing to talk. And their account of things was that they were molested within, um, you know, on a daily and nightly basis. When the case went to trial, only 14 victims testified. They started drawing up the indictment, and they came up, they were into the thousands of counts of child molestation, very serious felony, not just not just groping, but uh, very vile acts. The um, state attorney uh, and his assistant who were putting together said they just had to cut it back and stop and, and go back in the number of uh, counts, even though they had evidence. It was just that it was too fantastical for the jurors to believe that one man could have, could have uh, done all that. Dwight York was finally going to pay for his crimes. After decades of masquerading as a prophet, a leader, a chosen one, he was now being exposed for what he really was. The case against him was the largest single child molestation prosecution in the United States ever directed at one defendant. York was sentenced to 135 years in federal prison. There's no parole, you know, in the federal system, so he's not getting out. He's going to die in prison. The compound itself is no longer there. The land was auctioned off and the buildings torn down. As for York's followers, there's not much left of the Nuwabians today. They just kind of disbanded. If you go on the internet, you'll find two or three guys that are claiming to be York's successor. You know, and they're different Nuwabian organizations. You know, it's just it's just utter foolishness. So, Jessica, the Nuwabians were actually living and doing their thing in Georgia for almost a decade, and there seemed to be factors that played into why it took so long for authorities to move in. One big one, and Bill Osinski mentions this, is the fact that Waco was n- not long before all this. Right. And that's that's one of the things, I mean, that's the biggest thing that Sills really wanted to make sure wasn't going to happen in his backyard. You know, he didn't want another Waco happening in Putnam County. And, you know, he talks about the fact that he went out there a lot to check on things or uh, to check on permits or one thing or another. And every time he went, he had to make a tough decision. Yeah, he had a real fear of going to the compound and there being the potential chance for a shootout there. So he really 
took into consideration who he was going to take with him. When you went out there to have to serve a court order or something, a civil matter, you had to pick, I've had to sit down and say, and I always went myself too, don't get me wrong, I was always the first one, but when you sit down and you pick out your deputies that are going, and you have to sit down and pick out the ones who don't have children, because you know that some of you are going to get killed that day. Yeah, and you know, another factor in the whole thing was that the press at least according to Bill Osinski, for a long time, didn't really want to touch this whole issue in depth. Nobody wanted to be perceived as uh, religiously intolerant or racially prejudiced, so, you know, they let this story go away. I know that the, the New York Times ran a story about a year or so after he left and went around the neighborhood and all the people just said, well, we don't know what happened. All the, all the Muslims are gone now. Jessica, you know, I want to come back to your conversation with Howard Sills. Um, he talks a lot about how he really got invested in, the, in this whole thing, um, not just from the point of view of protecting the town or being worried about what was going on, but like researching other cults. Right. He traveled to other states. He did his research. He wanted to get to know who he was dealing with in a very personal way. And so he went to other places and learned as much as he could about York um, as a way to infiltrate and, and get into the compound in a in a successful way. And I have this one comment from him that he actually went uh, I believe went to the West Coast and learned about the Rajneesh, who were the, the Rajneesh movement at the time in the late 80s, and a connection there possibly. Because I kind of got convinced that maybe some of these people had come from out there. And, uh, and then, well, what I found out later on, York had just studied that and used some of the techniques they, they had used out there. But again, I just want to kind of underscore the fact that for Sheriff Howard Sills coming into a new job in Putnam County uh, back in the late 90s. This became a very personal issue for him. Absolutely. I mean, the the fear for him was real. Um, And, you know, anyone who's ever met Sheriff Sills knows he's a tough guy. So for him to have a real sense of fear... Um, you know, it had to be pretty bad. Um, he, he told me that he had FBI agents waiting for him to turn on the car. He spent like three months leading up to what eventually would be raiding the compound with deputies spying on the compound, keeping it very secretive from other law enforcement and government because he didn't want a war on his hands. And he felt like if York was tipped off, there was going to be bloodshed. And that's the last thing that he wanted. We had a, we called it the perch. It was kind of a half-assed foxhole across from the gate of the new compound. There was a deputy or me 24 hours a day from February, March, and April (laughs) watching that compound. No matter how cold it was or how much it rained, we were there. You know, I I have to say I was in working and living in Georgia around this time that some of this was going on in the later 90s, and uh, I'm surprised to say I hadn't heard of them. Um, But I guess that sort of speaks to the whole story that a lot of us hadn't heard of it until maybe the eventual raid went down, the charges against York. But even then, I feel like this story has gone unreported. I mean, when you think about the fact that there were, uh, you know, so many victims. Right. And I lived there for the last three years, and I had never even heard of this. And I've done stories in Putnam County with Sheriff Sills, and I had never heard of this until now. 
Well, join us again next week where we will have yet another story, oftentimes ones you have not heard of. Jessica, people can learn more about you. You have an amazing Facebook group, right? Right. We have a Facebook group called Gone Cold Unraveling Mysteries, and that's where we discuss cold cases and true crime And you can be part of the conversation by going there. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and all major listening apps. We'll be back next week and every week with a new episode and a new case. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. And I'm Jessica Knoll.